Good morning. I'm Darrell Gunter, your host for leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Well, I'm so pleased to have Mr. Matt Venturi, the CEO of ClearingBid, as our in-studio guest. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you, Darrell. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to, to learn about ClearingBid because I did spend 13 years at Dow Jones Financial News Services. And um, I just found that what you're doing is quite innovative. And as you say, it's gonna democratize um, this business. But before we jump into uh, ClearingBid, can you share with our audience uh, a little bit about your background experience? You betcha. Uh, well, I grew up here in California and I uh, went to Santa Clara University undergrad and then uh, moved back to New York, uh, where I ended up uh, joining Merrill Lynch. This was a rotational program called a corporate intern program, where I spent uh, 18 months with uh, 16 other uh, colleagues to learn the business. And I went to NYU Business School at night, and Merrill Lynch paid for that, which was a really nice feature. Uh, but I spent the initial years on Wall Street in sales, trading, and syndicate areas, learning really a lot about kind of the, the basic part of the business. And uh, for a period there, I was a, I was a, I was a broker while going to NYU while uh, working on that. But um, I eventually ended up moving into corporate finance and uh, uh, doing investment banking transactions, private placements, M&A, restructurings. Uh, they also included working with Solomon Brothers, Smith Barney, uh, Houlihan Loki, and then my own firm, uh, which was a great uh, learning experience in terms of managing people. And then uh, it really just provided me with a wide range of sell-side experience that really was a foundation for uh, for ClearingBid. So um, tell us about ClearingBid. Why did you start ClearingBid? Uh, well, it was a number of years ago that I, I really kind of had an affinity for uh, really the sales side of, of, of Wall Street. And, and honestly, it germinated from uh, my graduate thesis at NYU, which was entitled The Role of the High Net Worth Investor in the Capital Markets, which was really kind of the family office at that time that involved in the family office. And, uh, you know, I felt that there was really a number of underserved investors that uh, were overlooked by Wall Street. Now, I, I was a retail broker kind of fighting my way into uh, eventually corporate finance, and, and I had a difficult time doing it because I was a retail broker, which the corporate finance investment banking folks didn't necessarily fully appreciate. But uh, from that experience, I, I was able to really leverage it. So I, the opportunity I thought existed to level the playing field, offer more investors access to this new issue market. And so seven years ago, uh, I started the concept. We, uh, we germinated from that point. Uh, and uh, today we're, we're just about ready to launch publicly. Very nice. So um, could you explain to us what does Clearing Bid do for the financial markets? Or people yeah, simply, yes. You bet. Simply put, um, we're really uh, a platform that follows the same order pathways as a secondary market order. So brokers can submit an order just like they submit to an exchange or like an exchange destination, but we're applying that to the primary new issue market. So this would be IPOs, municipal bonds, corporate bonds, and, and essentially allow any investor who has an account in good standing with a brokerage firm to be able to uh, submit an order or instruct that broker either electronically through our uh, mobile app and website or directly over the phone or otherwise to, to request that an order be placed on behalf of that account. And that, that account's order is seen like any other order, uh, just like a secondary market order, 
but gets basically in the queue for a new issue. So we're effectively democratizing the IPO process in simple terms to allow any and all investors, retail or institutional, to be able to have the same uh, level playing field as the big institutions to have their orders participate and be able to be a part of these, these new issues from the first trade, from the first pricing. Wow. Okay. Now, uh, typically when folks uh, invest into a, a startup, um, they have to be an, an accredited investor. Does this mean that folks who are not considered accredited investors, but have a brokerage account would be able to participate? Yeah, that's a great question. So fundamentally, uh, what we're doing is we're following the same uh, same procedures as any kind of a public offering. So say, you know, an issuer says, okay, we want to use uh, XYZ underwriting firm to be our book running manager, go out and market this deal. So that same process occurs. A public uh, registration, a registration statement gets filed with the SEC. Uh, they prepare for the roadshow and they go into the market. Now, what happens that's fundamentally different is that back to your question, any and all investors who are uh, and, and have existing brokerage accounts whose brokerage firms are responsible for knowing the customer, know your customer, de determining suitability, is it a suitable investment, making sure there's cash in the customer's account, uh, which has to be available for settlement. Because on an on a IPO versus a secondary market, you can't buy those securities on margin. So you have to have 100% cash in the account. So you don't have to be accredited. Uh, you can be a, a any kind of an account, it can be a self-directed account, it can be a full service account, but at the end of the day, your broker is responsible for vetting the authenticity of that order and standing by that order, just like a settlement in the secondary market. Wow, that is exciting. That is very exciting. So as you said, you're truly democratizing uh, investments into new companies because as long as the money is, is in their account, they, they, they can invest it. They don't have to be uh, an, an accredited investor. And for my audience, and could you share with our audience the definition of an accredited investor for those who are not familiar with the term? Yeah, technically, and it's it's kind of changed a little bit, but you have to have at least $200,000 in income per year or a million dollars of net worth. But what is happening is uh, the SEC is beginning to uh, lighten that requirement to be more dependent upon ex investor experience than necessarily a minimum net worth. But that historically has been the, the hurdle, which does really limit uh, who you can market to or the number of offers you can make to people that aren't, quote unquote, accredited, which isn't really the way the public markets work. The public markets really open the doors for any and all investors to have have access. You know, I, I really think this is awesome. During my time at, at Dow Jones, the Security in Industry Association um, had the stock market game for, you know, for, for high school students. And uh, I'm an alumni of Seton Hall, and we have um, our investment room there. And um, I, I think this is such an, an exciting tool for universities. Is this something that you're thinking about rolling out to the universities as well in their different in, in, uh, mini investment centers? Yeah, it's funny you'd ask that, uh, Terrell, because so our first kind of focus group uh, includes uh, college uh, university uh, students here. And we figured, okay, they're probably have a higher propensity to one kind of bridge the gap between uh, burgeoning new investors who are in, and have a, a affinity for this, 
and uh, kind of the Gen X uh, and millennials versus the, the uh, 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 older investors. So we're starting with them as our focus group. We've built our uh, front end platform, which has the interoperability, which includes the ability to see real-time pricing. So getting up to and through the pricing event of a new issue, you can see what that price looks like, what the demand levels look like. You can pull down the prospectus. You can take a look at the net roadshow. You can look at research on the site because under the Jobs Act, now it didn't used to be the case, but under the Jobs Act, you can provide research in the ordinary course of business, meaning research can be used to, to, enter, to, to uh, educate and inform investors in combination also with their brokers of choice uh, to become better, you know, in, more engaged and better informed on a new issue. In the old days, you had to wait 30 days after a pricing before any kind of published research. But as long as that research is independent, it's not promoting, it's not affiliated with a, 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 a particular underwriter that's in the deal, you can provide it. So our site provides all those requisite tools. So Investors are better informed. They're working with their brokers. They can click on a button to say, place an order with their broker of choice or brokers of choice who get technically get a commission because it's not being paid by the, 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 the uh, investor. In a new issue, the, the growth spread, they call it, or the placement fee is the portion that's used to pay the commission to typically the book running manager. In this case, it's any broker that submits an order that gets filled. So we're incentivizing the brokers to show up and get compensated, no commission to the investors and, and full ubiquity and connectivity with this site that has a number of features like uh, chat capabilities and research and, and news feeds and some of the other uh, resources. So it's a one-stop shop. Very nice, very nice. And, and I believe you said at the beginning of our interview that you've been at this for seven years and you're about to launch? That's correct. Yeah, we, we technically, technically a company founded and financed with its first round seven years ago. It's taken a while to uh, come in and change the whole paradigm with a lot of skepticism. Uh, it starts with the biggest firms on the street, uh, all the way down to, you know, trying to educate uh, your average uh, investor. But um, I think at this point, we're in, in the market environment, quite frankly, with convergence of issues and the the awareness that uh, now the SEC has toward investor protections and access, the timing is right. So we're, we're planning on launching with our first public offerings by the end of this year. Very nice, very nice. And if, if the website is clearingbid.com, is that correct? Yes, but right now there's not much there because we're, uh, we're working on our, uh, our demo site, which is the feed, which we're going to be going live with probably within the next... Uh, I'd say 60 days. Uh, so that's just really a placeholder right now for the full functionality, which we were holding off until we actually have the first deal so we could plan to go to market and have something to show to everybody. But we're, we're pretty close to, to flipping the switch. And currently, do you, do you see yourself having any immediate competitors uh, to what you're doing? You know, that's a great question. And, and people talk about the barriers to entry and, and what do we have there? But I, I think uh, the short answer is uh, no, which sounds pretty broad based, but here's the, the, here's the, the principal reason why. Um, a lot of the big firms that have their franchises that are basically, uh, you know, ways in which they want to preserve that, that benefit or competitive advantage where they're typically providing securities to the accounts of choice that who in turn pay them the commissions. So it's a really quid pro quo business among the big institutions, the big underwriters. 
those firms, which are most likely candidates for as a competitor, are never going to flip flip the switch and open up the market to all these the broader number of firms, the, the Schwabs, the Fidelities, the Robinhoods, you know, the, the interactive broker groups, the self-directed accounts. And so they have a franchise to protect. So they're not really a competitor. The, the exchanges are kind of a different uh, animal because we're really agnostic as to where a company wants to list. So we're really going to facilitate more listings and more capital raising, more capital formation. But what we are is, is our backbone is truly based upon the exchange architecture and technology. Our, 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 technology, our chief technology officer, Roland Tabell, he was president of OMX, NASDAQ, NASDAQ OMX. And so he had 600 people working for him when NASDAQ acquired OMX that became the backbone and technology backbone for uh, NASDAQ. So that's really our architecture and design. But uh, I'd say, you know, the real competitors out there aren't, I, I don't see anybody who's really going to touch us right now because uh, it's a pretty tough combination to, to get to. And I, I, I think eventually maybe an exchange would want to get in this business, but I think we're the only game in town right now that could do this. Wow. And so when you think about um, the architecture in cybersecurity, um, launching a new platform like this, um, what are your concerns about cyber attacks as well as what are your plans to, uh, do, to do your level best to, um, to, uh, to, to stop them from happening? I mean, I, no one can stop in, you know, all cyber, but <laughs> we do the best that we can. As we yeah, no. with the, the gasoline and, and now with the beef. <laughs> you know, that's so topical too right now, Darrell. You know, so I, I think you really got uh, it's, it's to, a, it's a really good one. Uh, so here's the answer. Uh, we are really just an information portal. So what we're doing is we're porting the, the data on every transaction that's coming through our platform. Uh, and every order actually has to come through our platform. So that's that's one of the conditions here. You can't have some orders that go to the book running manager and they make the determination as to who they want to allocate. It's based on uh, price and time. So when the order comes in and, and what the price is. But what we're doing is we're feeding the data to the public and we're relying upon the existing infrastructure, including the ultimate settlement and delivery of the securities that, that take place today in the primary markets and how an IPO or, or a bond offering gets done. So we have scalability, we have reliability, we have security, but we're not handling any customer funds and we're not subject to really anything other than an information breach and the information that we're gathering on the users, which are basically behavioral preferences and who, you know, who, who they do business with and what kind of research they're looking at, what kind of, what kind of topics they're chatting about, you know, that we intend to protect. What we also have to make sure, uh, not so much cybersecurity, but, you know, that we don't get gained from folks that want to try to figure out how to, you know, really influence the, the, the pricing mechanism of what it is that we're doing with our backbone. So if I understand correctly, your platform allows me, the consumer, to take place in a placement but there's no money being exchanged on, on, on your system. That's correct. So what happens is you can go on our on our uh, app and you can take a look at the transaction and click on a button and say, okay, I, I want to place an order. And that directs you to, let's say you have an account with Interactive Broker or Fidelity. That takes you right to their site and to your login and your ability to put the order in just like you put a limit order in for an exchange trade. Same process. 
So we're not changing the real estate. We're not changing the plumbing. It's what they call it is fix. It's financial information exchange protocols, the way the orders get submitted. So we don't have to touch the customer funds. It's, it's, it's the, at the end of the day, it's a book running manager and the selling group participants that are responsible for the settlement and the delivery. Wow. And so then it, let's say, just to build on the example that we have, I'm, I, I want to buy a particular stock in the placement that's on your system. Um, the money transfers from my account into the, the resulting uh, the broker that actually has the stock. Yeah, so today, uh, and again, same process. So they typically call it the master agreement among underwriters. So if Schwab or Fidelity had the option, which typically they don't, to be able to have their customers put orders in on a new issue, they sign the master agreement among underwriters that commits them to settle the trade. And the book running manager is relying upon those selling group participants, those syndicate uh, members to authenticate and settle the trade. So it's a, it's the same uh, agreement in, in place, but the plan of distribution is using our system to be able to relay this information publicly, but we're still using the same backbone, the same type of agreements and the same settlement and delivery procedures as a typical IPO, but allowing all brokers who sign this master agreement among underwriters to be able to participate and authenticate orders on behalf of their customers. And so what is your business model for clearing bid? A uh, couple things. Number one, uh, we take a little piece of the growth spread of each transaction that gets done. So there's a breakdown among the management fee that gets paid to the book running manager, the selling concession that gets paid to the salespeople, and then underwriting expenses for bringing a deal public, like roadshow expenses, underwriters council, and what they call market stabilization. If you're in the secondary market and they're trying to support the market, there, there's some funds available for that. But typically deals are well underpriced. There's not a lot of market risk. And that's one of the inherent problems because companies issue, you know, leave a lot of money on the table with many, many IPOs. And they're not being placed in the hands of the investors that really want to buy, own and hold them. So we're taking a little piece of that growth spread, but our, our economic model really puts more compensation into the book running manager's hands. So they are indifferent as to doing a traditional IPO or even a direct listing. And our approach, which, you know, really optimizes the, the level of transparency and, and access, but mitigates the underwriting risk because there's more, more visibility and transparency associated with it. I mean, so really, you're really going after the long tail. Yeah. So between between those little transaction fees, which aren't really moving the needle much against what Wall Street gets paid, uh, the real opportunity, quite frankly, is over time to be able to capture those eyeballs and have the people who are using our platform, and it's both the public at large over the internet, uh, and you can be a different level. You can be a basic level and get the basic information on pricing. You can be a, uh, an advanced level, so you get research, and you can able to file that research, and you can chat about it, and you know, really talk to your community of, of, uh, of users and, and, and other followers, et cetera. And then what we call pro series, which is folks like yourself who might want to stream out a topic to this broader universe about, you know, uh, as a thought leader or, or interesting area. And as the users use that site, we're able to capture that information. I call it where the fish are biting, but, you know, behavioral preferences and, and trends, and then be able to sit down with an issuer and an underwriter and say, hey, look, if you're going to do this kind of deal in this industry, this is how you're going to optimize the execution in terms of where to go with that. And we're going to have that data on the primary markets that just doesn't exist today. Wow. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Matt Venturi, who is the CEO 
of Clearingbit, which is democratizing, uh, which normally would be IPOs and private placements, but allowing everyone to participate. And so when did you first come up with this idea for this Clearingbit? Yeah, it was, it was really uh, as a result of uh, being a retail broker and, and having people say retail brokers, you know, aren't really uh, important to the whole underwriting process because it's mostly institutional and it's, it's, it's the way the market generally focuses on capital formation for the big institutions. So, um, you know, a couple, do, you know, more than a dozen years ago and, and now I think I think honestly, Darrell, the, 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 this, this perfect storm of all these different variables coming into play to say, hey, look, the retail investor is a formidable investor. Uh, they tend to be loyal investors. And how do you, can you really tap that? And there's folks out there now are trying to figure out how to tap it, but they really don't know how to do it. And, and, and I think following this, again, this protocol of how secondary market orders get submitted is the trick to, to, to the whole equation to be able to allow access, visibility, and fairness. And so when you think about um, your crystal ball, what type of positive effect will Clearingbit have on the financial markets here in the U.S.? Uh, well, I think from a regulatory standpoint, uh, the SEC and FINRA both have uh, been very encouraging with us because one, we're, we're using oversight, the broker-dealer community to do their job, know your customer suitability testing, make sure these orders get settled. And two, the transparency and visibility. So there's less market risk and less aftermarket volatility uh, exposure. So the, the, the broader opportunity is to raise more capital for more companies at better pricing and put those securities in the hands of the investors who want to own and hold them and are loyal investors. I'm a big believer that, that the retail investor and people will take issue with it, are actually extremely loyal investors. But you got to give them a fair shake. And there's over $5 trillion of assets out there. There's more than 100 million accounts. There's more than 600,000 brokers and financial advisors and resident investment advisors who are shut out of this process. So that's 90% of the market that potentially is there to allow more companies to raise more, company, more, more capital in a more ubiquitous, fair way. So if, if, if I'm a, a, a foreign, an international investor, can I participate in Clearingbit? Am I able to uh, participate in the Clearingbit offerings that you'll have? You can, but uh, you know, typically uh, foreign securities are issued like advanced uh, uh, ADRs. But in this case, if you're a foreign investor, you have to have an account with one of the selling group participants that is participating in the transaction. So you'd have to have an account with a U.S.-based broker or a foreign broker that has access to uh, the U.S. markets. Okay. And so clearly the, the benefit is that you're democratizing um, the access to these uh, particular instruments. Do you, do you think that um, the industry will welcome Clearingbid and say, oh, this is a great new tool? Or will you have the, 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 the giant firms that, you know, they don't have this shiny new toy that might try to... Um, cause you to uh, not be as successful in your launch? Yeah, it's, it's a real obvious question because it's the first thing that people usually say when they're really pushing back. But we look at the different constituents in this ecosystem. First, I'll take the issuer. Better execution, uh, better reach, broader distribution, and better pricing. Uh, for the underwriters, as you point out, you know, the first reaction is the big guys don't want it. They don't need it. They've got, you know, tons of brokers and they see their fair share of deals. But, you know, that concentration risk of, of 
those firms dominating the business at the expense of everybody else has actually been at a detriment to the capital formation process. And I had one conversation with one of the bulge bracket big firms, CEO, or actually it's chairman. And he said, oh, Matt, we don't need this. We got 20,000 brokers. And I said, you know, your 20,000 brokers don't get any allocations in your deals. And your clients are going to walk into those offices and say, look, we want to participate in this new issue. If you're not allowing them to participate, then they're going to go across the street to another firm and be able to put those orders in. So you're going to lose assets. Your client the retention is going to be a problem. And your brokers can't get paid, which is, again, it's not coming out of the investor's pocket. It's coming out of the issuer's proceeds. So you're going to be a competitive disadvantage. I think for the uh, for the uh, 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 selling group participants that have not had this opportunity, these are the, the selling group uh, syndicate members, they're now going to be able to earn revenues. And most importantly, the investors are going to have access to a new product that they'd love to participate in and haven't been able to without commissions and with all the requisite information. So the four constituents in this system, I think, all benefit, but it's not without controversy. And this has been one of the biggest challenges to get to this point. But now, again, I think we've got this market environment and the perfect storm that the, 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 the demand pull that will effectively, effectively, I believe, occur once we're out there in the market. I mean, people are going to want to participate. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure among all these firms to, to also step up and, and be a part of it. Within your, your technical design and infrastructure, have you given thought to utilizing the blockchain technology as a way to facilitate the transactions? And, and ladies and gentlemen, we're not talking about cryptocurrency. We're not talking about uh, Bitcoin. We're talking about the blockchain distributed ledger technology. Have you given thought to um, implementing that on your platform? Yeah, so there's a couple components. One are the initial coin offerings or ICOs that people talk about offering. And, and that, you know, I think as a practical matter is, is some form of security. So the SEC is weighing in on how they want to regulate those offerings of those types of securities. But to your point, the digital ledger technology and the settlement and delivery uh, procedures to, for using blockchain makes a lot of sense. And I think what we're seeing now is more of the institutions, the, the money center banks and other players are coming in and, and recognizing that this is an inevitable uh, component of how uh, a, an efficient um, uh, 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 price, uh, well, not just pricing, but uh, um, uh, settlement and delivery of a security can take place. So what we'll do is we're just going to follow this, the same, you know, steps and procedures as those are implemented, as opposed to trying to be a leader right now. That's not to say we, we couldn't once we have an installed base, but uh, I think we're going to let it germinate a little bit more until it becomes regular way, but we're absolutely prepared to do that. That's, that's going to be an important part of it. Exciting. Very exciting. And so, Matt, uh, could you share with us, what is your leadership style? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I've learned over time that, uh, you know, people look for leadership, but you also, you know, have to be respectable and understand, you know, uh, how, how to kind of pull people along. So I've always been a big advocate of interchangeability, meaning uh, as I've grown my own firms and, and worked on Wall Street, I like to give the junior people more uh, exposure. They're doing the work. They get to make the presentations. They have more accountability, more responsibility. And that interchangeability over time allows me to be less uh, of, a, of a dependent variable when out there. But as a leader, you know, you really have to respect the fact that uh, you need to be a good listener, uh, but you have to have the fortitude and you have to have the uh, conviction that other people will believe in. So you, you've got to be able to take in 
and, and work with, I think, you know, people are smarter than I am who are good at what they do, but then provide that, that leadership to be able to uh, offer the drive and, and, and the vision that they can, you know, rally behind. And so how does one prepare themselves? If, 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 if a young uh, leader, manager is listening to this interview, what advice would you give that individual about how to prepare themselves to be a better leader? Uh, well, I think one thing is important. You, you've got to, you know, have the, the base foundation and believe in what you're doing. Um, you can bluff your way through, but I think, you know, just fundamentally in this business anyway, you've got to, uh, yeah, I have to know the business to be able to go toe to toe with, with folks, as you point out, who have a real uh, level of skepticism and, uh, and creating barriers to entry to what we're doing. So that, that's the first step. But um, I think the, uh, the most important thing is that, you know, you, you have to stick with your convictions and, uh, and people have to believe, you know, that you've got the credibility to do it. And it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a learning process. I mean, I, you know, coming from my professional career mostly has been wall street and you're working with other firms and you're competing against, you know, the best and the brightest out there. But at the end of the day, you know, to, if you're going to be a cowboy and you're going to go out and try to lead something, you're probably not going to have a lot of success with these big firms where you have to consensus build and everything else. So to do this is more of an entrepreneurial, you know, approach with the fundamental background you've got to be a good consensus builder with people and they've got to believe in you and, and you got to trust in their, their, their uh, talents and skills. And, and it's through that, you know, mutual respect that you can be the leader, but you can, you also have to be uh, the, the student too. I think it's important. Matt, it has been great. Believe it or not, we are out of time, but before we go, I'd like to give you the last word, 30 seconds about clearing bids. Well, it's a pleasure, uh, Darrell, to talk with you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, this is a, a, a little bit more complicated than I think a lot of people uh, at first kind of expect to, to realize, but in the simple, simple, simple terms is uh, we are just democratizing this new issue IPO process so everybody can have access. And uh, I believe that uh, the time has come after 80 plus years of opaque and uh, very uh, behind the, the curtain process for how deals get priced and distributed uh, that it's, it's time has come. And, and I'm, you know, extremely excited about the opportunity to allow the masses to be able to participate in what only the big institutions have been, had the benefit of, and it's going to really be for everybody's benefit in, in this whole system. So I appreciate the opportunity to just chat with you about it. And uh, you've asked some good, very uh, uh, insightful questions. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Matt Contrary, the CEO of Clearing Bid. Matt, again, thank you for your time today and to discuss your platform, Clearing Bid. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Darrell Gunter, your host on leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net, Seton Hall University. I want you to have a great weekend, but remember, leadership begins with you. WSOU 89.5 FM.